I can only imagine the the yeah what you're doing on the other end during the uh, the intro song there. Yep. yep. <laughs> yes, you can only imagine because I can't see you during I the know, intro. But I get to watch you look nervously at the screen. <laughs> yes, because I know something. I know things are happening on the other side. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I tell you all about it, but it'd take away the mystery. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, we're back for another episode of our Fusion Underground uh, season four episode. What is it? Three? Are we on three? I believe we are on three. Uh, yes. Three. Yeah, yeah. Their episode, is it 39? 40? Uh, what is no, it? No, no, oh, we're, my we're God. Not at, we're not at 40 yet. We're not at 40 yet. So if we must be like, it must be like number 39 now. Yeah. It's crazy. Yep. I think so. It's crazy. We're getting up there. Getting ready to hit the big, uh, the big four. Oh, well, here at the Fusion Underground, we try to make sense of the world by having principled discussions about such topics as entertainment, current events, politics, and culture. Our mission is to educate people to become critical thinkers so they can live more empowered and happier lives. As always, I'm your host, Manuel Ramirez, and I'm joined in the virtual studio by none other than Jason Moret. How are you doing, sir? Good, sir. Don't call me sir. That's weird. Well, today on the show, we're going to be talking about kind of a a smorgasbord of things related to humility and ideology. You know, we always say that we want to educate people to become critical thinkers, right? Mm -hmm. So that they can become empowered. But in the past, we've also talked about the dangers of ideologies. And so you and I were talking about, well, how do we, how do people become critical thinkers, um, so that and and empowered in their thinking without succumbing to an ideology, right? Yeah. Uh, how do they? How do people not just become clones of us? Why I, they would well, want to do that? I don't know, but I don't know that I'm necessarily worried about anybody becoming a clone of you or I, but per okay, se. Good. But but I do know. Um, you know, let's just take a, a conservative uh, talk radio host. Mm-hmm. Our, our good friend Rush Limbaugh mm-hmm. God love him mm-hmm. um, you know I agree with a lot of the things he says but at what point do I have to safeguard myself as a listener versus in actually question some of the things that he says and how do we luck I like to think that as a critical thinker or as I work on developing my critical thinking skills slowly but surely that we're actually analyzing what is being said and and picking that apart before just blindly becoming um, adherent to an ideology. Because let's face it, whether it's him or anyone else, I mean, you take uh, some of the people on the left that do the exact same thing. They've got their 
um, ideology that they adhere to. And then they amass people listening to them who blindly go along. So I don't want to see either one of us do that. So how do we, um, I guess, kind of educate people in a way that actually gets them to think critically, which I think is a very valuable thing, especially in today's society, mm -hmm. without getting anybody just kind of blindly becoming yes man to anything you or I are saying. Yeah. Well, or anyone is saying that. And we're seeing this now playing out in our political sphere, in our culture, right? Um, to a certain degree. And what I mean by that is since January 6th, we've had people on the left completely lose their minds. And now that that ideological war between left and right has really exploded. And I think it's really um, exploded on the side of the left against the right. And the reason why I say that is because we now have, we've had it in the past and I've seen it in the past, but we now have more people on the left coming out and literally declaring war ideological war on the right to the point where people want to deprogram that has been a word that has been used just this last week against conservatives that we need to conservatives need to be deprogrammed uh and and, and so let's let's talk about that let's talk about that a little bit because i think all of this sort of ties nicely into the idea of how do you think for yourself without becoming overpowered or developing your your own ideology. So for example, um, earlier this week, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, representative from the great state of New York, she is of course a Democrat. She said, she said that the red states in the South, Southern red states, they're not actually red states. That's what she said. She said, they're not really red states, but rather they are suppressed states. They're suppressed and that they need to be liberated to heal America. This is what she says, quote, that's what we got to do. We got to reorganize. And I think what we saw in Georgia is a really good example with black women leading the way with multiracial and multicultural organizations leading the way. Um, they proved that Southern states are not red states, she claimed. She goes on, they are suppressed states, which means the only way that our country is going to heal is through the actual liberation of Southern states, the actual liberation of the poor, the actual liberation of working people from economic, social, and racial oppression. That's the only way. That's the only way. We just got to keep pushing, she said. But tonight, the votes that happened were to urge Vice President Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment, and tomorrow we vote on impeachment. She continued, we will be impeaching the President of the United States tomorrow. So, and they did. They they actually, the House of Representatives impeached him, so the next day they did impeach him. But, you know, this this concept here, this is a an elected member of Congress. Mm -hmm. Now, say what you will about her being crazy, her being inexperienced, uh, anything of those of that nature, all, with, all of which I would agree, um, but she is a member, she is an, a duly elected member of Congress. She, is, she holds a seat in one of the three branches of our federal government. This isn't just a Hollywood actress saying this. Right. This isn't just some professor at a university. This is a member of Congress who says that the red states are suppressed and they need to be liberated. Um, later this week, she actually called for funding, for federal funding, to be set aside for the actual liberation of 
uh, of these Southern states. Yeah. And, and of course, remember, of course, all of this is to heal America. That's what she said. She said, we have to liberate them to heal America. That, and it, it, and what, what she's saying here is they cannot be allowed, this, these red states in the South cannot be permitted to continue to think con as conservatives right. because they have to be liberated so that they can think like liberals. And then that way we will heal the country. Right. Right. And I've heard this before, you know, you can't, <clears throat> there is absolutely no way to, um, for the liberal party. And I say liberal party on purpose to actually reason with the conservatives that are left in this country. And from what I've been told or what I keep hearing, it's not our fault. Right. It's because we have been so misinformed our entire lives that we have been brainwashed into thinking that we can think for ourselves and that we should fear and hate and mistrust the government. And in the only way for us to be quote unquote reached is for, uh, for that ideology to be washed out and for them to reeducate us. This sounds an awful lot like another dictator who actually sent people to camps to be re-educated. Can't remember the name of that guy. Yeah, well, um, you know, this even goes, this goes even beyond just uh, AOC, Ocasio-Cortez on, on MSNBC, on Joe Scarborough. Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, she writes for the New York Times, and she was she's the one who penned this whole concept called the 1619 Project, oh, which, yeah. com which completely uh, retcons uh, Black history and the relationship to how Blacks got to America, all this kind of stuff. Um, but she actually called for the deprogramming deprogramming she actually asked the question how do we deprogram millions of racist violent trump supporters millions so of course millions plural were not at the state or at the federal the national capitol building uh in washington dc on january 6th so she's literally a painting with a very very broad broad brush as she talks about uh trump supporters nationwide um, and that they need to be deprogrammed. And, you know, she has a very powerful platform. She's, she writes for the New York Times and she was on MSNBC's Joe Scarborough, as a matter of fact, on national television calling for deprogramming. PBS, PBS, they, uh, they had a, a lawyer, this is a lawyer, public broadcasting, the public broadcasting system, um, was they had this lawyer they actually fired him because of this because of his rhetoric um oh and i think i lost jason here so i'm just going to keep kind of keep freestyling here until he comes back but uh they the pbs actually had a guy their lawyer here that said um you're back kind of sort of back all right. So 
Jason, we've got some technical difficulties over here. I'm going to keep, because I'm still recording on my side. So I'm going to just keep talking. But PBS employee, this uh, the lawyer here, he called for re-education camps for Trump supporters and for their children, for Trump supporters' children to be removed. Um, and, and yet, you know, that seems to be a growing narrative on, on uh, the side of the left. Um, so now we have MSNBC talking about deprogramming people. We have a, a member, an employee of PBS who has since been fired talking about sending uh, Trump supporters to re-education camps and removing their children. Um, and now we have the latest, this was just two days ago, Harvard students have created a petition that uh, any graduate of Harvard who is a Trump supporter uh, should lose their degrees. And here's from their, from their petition. It says, quote, Harvard must revoke the degrees of alumni whose incendiary language and subversion of democratic processes rooted in a history of white supremacist voter suppression incited the violent insurrection on January 6th. This includes all who have used their platforms to deny the validity of the presidential election they do not and should not represent a university committed to strengthening democracy and the advancement of justice. So this is, you know, this continues to be a prevailing, prevailing thing from the left in the last several days, just in the last uh, week and a half, two weeks. Okay. Go for it. I probably, well, a big part of what pisses me off about a lot of this, I don't like the idea of being lumped into a one-person party. And what I mean by that is, okay. The fact that conservatives are unilaterally lumped into a quote-unquote Trump supporter party is fucking maddening to me. And I, I'm just, I'm freaking tired of that because you guys are missing the damn point. It doesn't have anything to do with Donald Trump, and it never has. It has everything to do with the difference between a suppressive and controlling government run or party run government versus the preservation of liberty and conservatives have for decades called out for a conservative small government and Trump is the only person in the last at least 20 years who's actually believed that. Now, if you want to say that that makes every conservative a Trump supporter, how overwhelmingly narrow-minded are you people? That's one. Two, I've been talking about the war on the American people for at least 10 years. If well, It's been longer than that, I know. But this is what I've been talking about, the idea of free and independent thinking is under attack and it has been for quite some time. Um, you will either fall in line or find yourself at the back of it, at the whip and the tail end of the whip. And if you don't know what I mean by that, well, sorry, but 
this this is a, this is this is war and i've been saying it for a while this is an all out war and yeah. the fact that we have like you pointed out elected members of our government actually calling for this shame on them all but worse shame on us for allowing this shit to continue well that's why they call for it because they know they're not going to be held accountable for it right right um so here's the thing. You and I were talking about this uh, a few days ago, last week, uh, but I don't think we talked about it on on the on the podcast. And you know, when I hear all of this kind of craziness happening, um, the I will admit that the federal election to me was very, it was very odd, oh. and. Uh, you know, the, the, when they stopped counting in the middle of the night, um, there are, there are things that happened in the days after where they were counting ballots that didn't make sense to me, that did not add up. And I was calling for, at the time I was saying, we need to audit the actual votes and find out what's happening. We did, we never really audited much of anything. Um, and there are a lot of outstanding questions that haven't really been answered. And, you know, of course, people have, you know, there, there have been uh, government officials who have come out and who have said, oh, you know, all of these, you know, one by one, you know, these situations, uh, these were all just false. They're basically just saying these, these, aren't, these are inaccurate. These are false. They never happened. Yeah. Well, that to me, that doesn't, that doesn't fly. It, it, it doesn't, it doesn't sit well with me when, when the, all of these irregularities were happening and then the people that were <clears throat> responsible for those irregularities just simply come out and tell me that don't worry about it. Nothing happened. Nothing to see here. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and you and I have said since the election, since the day after the election, two days after the election, we said, you know what? This is going to go to this is going to go to Biden. We know that Biden is going to be inaugurated. You and I have been saying that since mm -hmm. uh, since the beginning beginning of November, since after the election. Um, and and I'm not asking for the election to be overturned. I've never called for that. No. What I'm calling for is I'm calling for a reevaluation of the way we vote in this country because there are millions of people who 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 look at this and say something is. Something is in, is terribly wrong. When CNN, I think it was CNN or MSNBC, I can't remember which one, posted a poll that said 60% of both Republicans and Democrats felt that there were oddities across the election, that there sure. was voter fraud. Now, is there was there enough voter fraud to be, you know, to completely flip? Well, we don't know. But in my opinion, if there's even the ability for one vote to be fraudulent, it's one vote too many. Sure. You and, and, and so we shouldn't just stand by and say, oh, well, it just wasn't that many votes. Well, okay. So uh, to your point, I know a lot of people on, on both sides of the aisle. I have some very, very liberal friends and even they, I mean, day, night and days after we're going, yeah, but you have to admit there's just way too many strange things or too many irregularities. Something doesn't smell right. When I've got, I mean, bleeding heart liberal friends going, 
dude, something's up, man. This doesn't feel right. That's a problem. Now, I and like you pointed out, neither one of us have been saying we want the election overturned. We want um, the results changed. What I have been calling for and asking for, and I know you've heard me say this and a couple of my other friends have too, the American people deserve to have their faith in our electoral process restored. Yes. Even if it was, I mean, all jacked up. Investigate it, identify the situation, state what the problem was and what the plan of correction is so that the American people can have faith restored in their process. If there was nothing and you investigate it, you identify your findings, you reveal those findings. Here's what we found. Everything was fine. Restore that faith. You want to talk about how you heal? That's how you heal. Right. Not mm. by telling all of those people in those southern red states that they're really liberal. They just don't know it yet. And you're going to educate them and re-educate them into oblivion until they submit. It, what I liken it to is this. And I think I think many people understand sports metaphors. Okay. Um there was a there was a time when I watched the NFL. I don't watch the NFL anymore, not because not necessarily because of the the kneeling. Granted, that was a part of it, but I hadn't been watching the NFL for a few years before the whole kneeling thing started. So I cannot say that I stopped watching the NFL with the kneeling. I stopped watching the NFL because I felt that the game was starting to become well not very entertaining, mm -hmm. and that happened years ago. So I'm probably on year five or six of not watching the NFL. Anyway. My point in this, my point in all that is, is simply this. There, there, have been, there have been times, you know, we all have our different favorite teams or that we're rooting for uh, in big games, for example. Mm -hmm. And we tend to side against the referees when the referees make calls against our team. I get it. Mm -hmm. But then there are those one, then there are those few games where you're watching it. And there's an, there's an egregious miscall by the ref. And even, even if it goes against the opposing team, you might be sitting there with your buddy watching the game who's a fan of the other team. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you're watching the replay and you're like, yeah, man, that was a bad call. Yeah. It, you know, oh, my, that shouldn't have happened. Yeah. yeah. And you're like, you know what? I'm glad it wasn't my team. I'm my team did benefit from it, but yeah, that was a bad call. That should that not the flag should not have been thrown on that one. Right. I mean, we've all been there. We've all had that sure. kind of a situation. The federal election was like that. Mm -hmm. When when but, you when you have Democrats saying, Yeah, that's a bad call. And the sad part is, even in the NFL, you're talking about a game. It's football. We've now got instant replay and we go to the tape and we watch it from multiple different angles. And we've got like 900,000 cameras all over so that we can actually spin things around and reverse a bad call or confirm a good one. You know, I mean, we, we have that ability in sports. Where is that ability with our federal election? We should right. have that. And, and I'm not asking you to overturn it. And even no. the NFL has those safeguards in place. There has to be overwhelming evidence to reverse right. a call on the field, right? Right. Well, the call on the field or on the night of was elections called. It's done. 
if there is not overwhelming evidence, then you can come out and say, well, we found this irregularity, this, this, and this, but not overwhelming evidence to a degree of this, that, or the other, and just lay it out so that everyone has at least the faith or, or wherewithal to say, okay, they looked at everything out there. This is what they found. Yes, there were, you know, eight ballots that were wrong. Wouldn't have made a difference anyway. Moving on. Well, and they and the NFL, the NFL to continue the metaphor, right? They've been they've been improving on instant replay for 20 years. Okay. Right. And every year or every couple of years, they adjust the rules because why? Because they want fans to have faith in the system. They want, they want fans to know that at the end of the day, both teams had a level, a level playing field and it was fair for both teams and whoever wins is the winner. And they want in the NFL for years has always, has always uh, tried to uh, restore that faith in the game itself and officiating by tweaking or reflecting upon reflecting on the way they handle the way the, the referees are trained, the way that the, you know, the uh, instant replay is managed and everything. And yet I don't see our governments and I know that the federal elections are held at the state level, but I don't see anybody from Congress even calling for the states to reevaluate the way they manage their elections to avoid future fraud. I don't see that happening. And you want to be able to heal the country. We need politicians right now in Washington calling for that and saying, look, we're not going to overturn the election, but we need to instill faith in future elections and make sure that things are fair in future elections. And so as a member of Congress, I'm calling for states to, to reevaluate how they manage the ballots and count ballots and all that kind of stuff. And nobody is doing that. Nobody is doing that. Well, that's not going to happen now. Do I do I think that will happen? Yes. Yes, I do. But that's not going to happen now. All of the any talk about balloting or our electoral process, that is all going to be just shut down. And you've seen that. Just shut it down. Nothing to see here. Move along. Um, to talk about it will get you banned off of YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and anywhere else. No, you're not allowed. I believe that that may happen about nine to 10 months prior to the midterms, but well, you have more faith than I do than the, you know, because I, I don't, I think that will be fought tooth and nail because I think there, I think there are pockets of fraud. Oh, and it will that, be fought I think that, tooth and nail. I, I'm I not going to say it's not going to be fought. Right. Those who, those who benefit from the fraud are going to, are going to fight against it. Sure. Um, and, and, and so for me, I have, I have reached this, this conclusion. This is a conclusion that I have reached for myself and people have asked me, well, what are you going to, what are you going to do going forward? I, I, I know people that have said, I'm not, I'm not going to vote ever again. I, I'm, I'm done. Why should, why should I, it doesn't matter. It literally doesn't matter. Um, because if they're going to commit fraud, then it doesn't matter if, you, you know, my side could, could, could win overwhelmingly, but the other side is just going to cheat and, and secure victory. So why should I even bother voting? And so they're not going to vote. And I was in a similar place and I was like, well, you know, do I, do I vote? Do I not vote? Um, for me, I have taken a, I have come to a different conclusion. And my conclusion is 
I'm always, at least for the time being, I'm going to vote for none of the above. I don't expect my, my vote to matter at all. In, in no way, shape or form will it matter. And in fact, I know that it won't matter. But for me, I'm voting either always, I'm gonna vote against the incumbents or if there is no incumbent, okay? If it's just a straight up election battle because either somebody can't run again because of term limits or they're retiring and so they're choosing not to run again. And so now there are two people, you know, Republican and Democrat and they're running uh, and it, one of them is gonna be seated but not one of them is not the incumbent. Well, then I'm just not gonna vote for that particular seat. And, and for me, I don't want my, my ballot to be cast for the continuation of the crap that I see in the government. But I'm, I also want it, I also want, at least in my mind, I, at least in my mind, I want to know for my own self that, hey, I did my, I did my civic duty as a voter, but I'm not voting for this crap anymore. Um, and, and, and as a, as sort of a, it's a one man's kind of protest. And again, I don't think anything's going to change. No, I hear you. I hear you. And I, I asked that I was like, so you're not actually intending to uh, make effectual change no. at that point. Right. No, yeah. no, I'm not. And this, this is, this is a thing that, that happened that I would do when I was in Flagstaff and I never thought about it before. When I lived in Flagstaff for people who don't know Flagstaff, it should be, renamed as the People's Democratic Socialist Republic of Flagstaff. It is it is overrun by liberals and they are slowly bleeding that city to death. Mm -hmm. And there's an overwhelming liberal population there um, and they love it. They they love the bleeding of the city to death. Uh, it's a, the death of a thousand cuts. And when I was a Republican living in Flagstaff, one of the things that I noticed very quickly was that when it came time to vote for for things like the the mayor or city council, there were no there were never Republicans on the ballot, so it was only there were only Democrats on the ballot. But the but the problem with that, let's use the mayor as an example. The problem with that is when it came to the general election, there was only one candidate on the ballot, which meant that the real race for for mayor occurred during the primaries. But since I was not a registered Democrat, I did not get to vote in the primaries. And I'm fine with that. I, you want to be, you want to play at the, in the party pool, you have to be a member of the party. I get it. I'm not saying that. I think the law should have been changed that said, you know what, if there's only going to be a candidates from one side, the primary vote moves into the general. There should have been at least do the three or four Democrat candidates running just hold them over into the general because as a Republican voter, I didn't get a say. I never got a say in who the mayor was going to be. Mm -hmm. Never. Because it was already decided. The Democrats already decided it during the primaries. And so there was only one person. There might be four people running for mayor during the primaries. But by the time it got to the general, it was only one. And so there was only one person to pick. And so what did I do as a Republican voter? I never cast a ballot for mayor. I would turn in my ballot. It was like a big old thing front and back of all kinds of stuff. But the, the mayor would empty mm -hmm. because I wanted it known that yes, you won, but you did not win with 100% of the vote. And of course it doesn't change anything. Go ahead. No, it doesn't change the outcome. And, and I, I get where you're at. And I actually, I actually got to vote for a mayor this year. Um, 
So I felt bad. And I know, I know what you're talking about, about not being able to have that voice. Um, for me going forward, I, I'm going to cast my ballot for the person that I want to actually win regardless. Do I think it's going to actually happen? No. Do I, does that matter to me personally? Well, to a point, yeah, it sucks, but I'm still, I, I am still going to cast my vote, my vote as I would for the person that I would want, because for me, that's my voice. And that now, is whether right. anybody wants yeah. to fiddle with that afterward, I can't control that. I couldn't control that yesterday. I can't control it today nor tomorrow. But just like you and I are sitting here having a conversation and I, I speak my mind, um, I stand on my values and principles and I'm open and honest, sometimes a little bit too honest for some people's taste. And I get that too, but I own that. Mm -hmm. If I sit here and just don't participate, well, then why have me around? You, you know, the, there was another thing that, um, that I thought about, you know, after all of this, and, and that's the difference between Republican or conservatives and liberals. And that is, if you are a conservative, then you are fundam fundamentally in favor of limited, i.e. smaller government. You want a small government. We understand that we need to have a government of some degree. We need to have uh, a governing body that, that establishes certain laws and regulations that need to be followed. We get that, right? Uh, but we want that to be as small as possible because the smaller the government, the more liberty is, more liberty is maximized. Okay. Um, the, if, if you're a liberal, then a large part of your thinking is catered around government can solve various problems. So liberals always go to the government to solve problems, whether it's problems related to hunger or poverty or the environment, they always go to the government and want the government to do something about it. Well, in order for the government to do something about it, they have to pass laws, they have to create increase, increase regulations, etc. And every time government grows, it reduces the freedoms and liberties of, of the population. That's what happens. Right. Here's the thing. The natural course of governments is to grow. That's its natural course. Sure. The natural course is to constantly grow and grow and grow. All governments do that. That's what they do. So if you're a liberal and you're voting one election cycle and your, your government hasn't grown as big or as quickly as you wanted to, that's okay because chances are it's probably grown a little bit. Mm -hmm. As a conservative, you know every single time, every year, the government grows automatically and there's not a damn thing we can do about it. Right. Nothing. Even if the entire country were to vote conservatively, the government is still going to grow. And so as a conservative, you are literally fighting back the, the tide. You are literally trying to shore up the, you know, the, the beachhead and keep the tide from, from coming in. But eventually the, the tide keeps eroding away at the wall, at the seawall that you're building. And eventually the sea is going to get in there. It's just a matter of time. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So if you're playing on the side of the liberal, if you love big government, you're already in a natural state of you're going to win eventually. You just got to wait. You just have to wait. You may not have gotten all of the things that you wanted this time around, but next year it's going to grow. And the year after that, it's going to grow. And probably within your lifetime, 
it's going to get bigger and you're going to get all of the stuff that you want. Now, can you imagine if you're going to play a board game, let's say we're going to play chess and every single time we're going to play, you're going to lose. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how well you play. It doesn't matter on, uh, you know, if, if I play with my eyes closed, it doesn't matter if I play with half of the pieces than you, you're still going to lose no matter what. At some point, you're going to say, I'm just not going to play anymore. I don't want to play. Great. I don't want to play anymore. Yeah. And it's tough. And and so let me ask you a question, because this this was a discussion I had with somebody here not long ago, um, because I made the exact same argument. Um, liberals want bigger, badder, uh, stronger government, and they want more intrusive government. Well, that's not true. Yeah, it is. I mean, that's that's exactly what it is. And it and just surviving another year means we've added more power and more influence the government has. So let's pretend I'm I'm a liberal individual and I say, well, what's wrong with a bigger government? Why is that bad? Why you're asking me that question? I'm why asking that you bad? that. What? Why is why is big government? Let's just we're gonna we're gonna answer this or try to answer this for all of our our liberal listeners out there. Why is a big bad government so bad? What what's bad about that? Why well, is having government involved in everything we do bad? Well, well, a few things. Uh, on one hand, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, that any time that the government makes a law, by definition, that means our liberties are restricted. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if, if the government makes a law that says um, $15 an hour minimum wage, if you're a small business owner, your freedom to set a wage for your company has been reduced. Okay. So anytime that the government grows, your freedoms are reduced. Mm -hmm. If the government shrinks, then your freedoms increase. So these things are inversely proportional. Your freedoms are inversely proportional to the growth of the government, to the size of the government. That's just, that's, that's one, that's, that's one item there. Two, the other item is as the government grows, they have to get fed. The government beast has to get fed from someplace. And where, where do they get fed from? They get fed from the American taxpayer. Now, yes, the government can borrow money from China. We've been doing that. We do that daily. Okay, we do that daily. They own a tremendous amount of our debt. China could call the notes on that and say, pay us back right now, in which case we default and go into bankruptcy and our economy collapses. So the more that the government borrows, we as American citizens are on the hook for a larger and larger tax bill. And so that encourages the federal government to increase taxes on us in order to pay for all of the stuff that government wants to pay. So that's that. And freedom is, is interchangeable with economic liberty. So what I mean by that is the more freedoms that you have with your economics, with your own personal economy, your own personal dollars, then the more freedom you have there, the more free you are as an individual. So the less free that you are in your own personal finances, the more of a slave you are to the state. So that's, that's another problem. And yes, the government could simply print the dollars, 
But there are plenty of situations from history that shown that that's a really, really bad idea. When governments begin printing their own dollars, which we do also on a daily basis, then that leads to over hyperinflation. And we've seen this in China during uh, just during the the civil war that allowed uh, Mao Zedong Mao Zedong to take over power. The, the nationalists there were printing money to, to try to fight the war. And the, the, their, their dollars were, um, were worthless. People, people, can you imagine having to take a wheelbarrow to the grocery store just to buy some basic groceries? That's what it was like in China. That's what it was like in the Weimar Republic, which became Germany. They were paying people. You would go to work and they would pay you like three times a day because the prices were changing so drastically and you had to be given breaks so that you could run and buy bread because if you waited an hour, the bread would cost $20 more than it was right now this second. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine rolling into fries or rolling into Safeway and paying $250 for a loaf of bread? Well, that's what happens when governments print money. So that's bad. So government growth leads to crazy things happening with economics, usually in the form of inflation. It leads to increased government control and oppression and, and human liberties being reduced. Um, and, and, and also those things can't be unwound. They, they no. just can't be unwound without the government collapsing in and on, on itself, yeah. which when that finally happens, you're talking massive amounts of poverty, massive amounts of chaos in the government as it resets. Things, you know, yes, the Soviet Union collapsed and things in Russia were not, were not in a cozy state for about 10, 20 years while they recouped and rebuilt their, rebuilt their government. So yes, it can happen, but we're talking collapse. And when collapse happens, Oh man, that's a that's a bad place to be. Yeah, yeah, no, and and um, you and I were having kind of an off off mic discussion um, the other day about whether if there is a way back to to true liberty and freedom in this country, and I unfortunately I don't know that I can necessarily point to a reason to disagree with the idea that in order for us to get back to what we've had, we've got to barrel through what we're stuck with, and I don't think that that ends any other way than with absolute collapse it's tragedy and it's tragedy it is. it's it's that just means tragedy now is that going to happen in our lifetime i don't know i don't have a crystal ball i can't tell you when it's going to happen all i can say is the pathway to more liberty is literally the government is literally government collapse and that's just bad all the way around and it's going to be a bad time for everybody go ahead well no and it's it's interesting when you talk about who controls um the wealth in this country and how much faith people put especially the, the liberal minded individual um, puts in the government. It's mm -hmm. you, I've heard a, a lot and you know, Flagstaff and you talked lovingly about it um, earlier in the show. Um, how many people I know really love would love to see us get back to this communistic trade and barter type society. And somehow this belief that under a, a, total rule by government control that we can actually get back to that where there's not going to be any division of class or anything like that and we will all uh sing kumbaya and live in harmony that's harmony a pipe together. dream that's it's a pipe ridiculous. dream that's no a, it is that's that's just rainbows and unicorns and that's just a bunch of bs mm -hmm. that's what that is well and the funny part is so even in a in a trading bar so um lucy you grow vegetables and i have cows um I need vegetables. You need beef. 
we come to an accord. I trade you X amount of cows for so many potatoes or whatever it is you've got that we want. That's fine. What product or service does the government itself provide? Nothing. Nothing. doesn't provide anything. It doesn't provide a damn thing. And how much of our goods, our services, our labors, our liberties, our freedoms, our wealth, our trust, our faith, do we just blindly hand over to an entire entity in control that produces nothing for the people it governs? Nothing. You know, bartering is great. The problem with that in our in our in our modern day society is the vast majority of people are knowledge workers. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of people are knowledge workers, which means we go to the office every day, we do what's called knowledge work. The vast majority of Americans do not know how to do carpentry. The vast majority don't know how to grow vegetables and fruit. The vast majority of people don't know how to hunt or create you know, do woodworking or create leather or create shoes or uh, sew clothes. The vast majority of people don't know how to do that. And so, yes, you get these crazy liberals that are like, well, I, you know, I can grow vegetables. I'd be happy to barter for stuff. Who are you going to barter with? Yeah. (laughs) Who who are you going to barter with? Because everything that you rely on in your home, nobody in this country can make on their own. Right. Nobody. So if, if, if everything collapses and you had your, your liberal utopia, rainbows and unicorns running around, you don't have the internet, you don't have computers, you don't have electricity, you don't, you don't have candles, you don't have any of that stuff because the vast majority of people don't know how to make it. Right. No, you're right. And, and I don't think I could make candles. I sure as heck wouldn't be able to get on a, uh, my daughter's bicycle and somehow, you know, pedal enough to create, uh, generate enough electricity to run my home. Um, I couldn't do it. You, you, you know, I, you know, you were laughing at me right before the show because I was talking about ethnographies that I've been reading and I've been, I, one of the ones that I, I just finished reading is, is about, um, off grid. I think it's titled off grid and it's about, it's an ethnography about people who live off the grid. They've bought land. It's all up in Canada because the the science, um, the social scientists are up in Canada. So they traveled all over all over Canada interviewing off gridders. And here's the here's the thing: off off grid living is not very romantic. No. It's not. <laughs> And, and these people that are living there, they love it. And they love it. It's their cup of tea. They don't want to live in the city. They love being off, off the grid. But these people work like 10, 12 hour days minimum just to survive. Right. I mean, because they don't have electricity. They don't have running water. They don't have, you know, they, they don't have plumbing. Mm-hmm. They, they, they have to, you know, there was a couple that has to, that have, they have to pack in their potable water. Mm-hmm. They capture rainwater for the purpose of doing laundry or for bathing, but they can't drink that water. Right. So they pack it in. They, they have to pack it in and they store it under the, f- no, he, no American would be able to do that. <laughs> right. 
there, we would, we would die. There would be millions of deaths that, because people would, yes, some people would adapt. Most sure. people would not. Most I'm reading this ethnography and I'm like, nobody would do this kind of stuff. Nobody, because ever we get these ideas like, well, if I just live off grid, I would have all this free time and I'd be able to sit and read. Yeah. You know what they have, they, they sit and read too, because they don't have computers, but they also have to work their asses off to survive. Mm -hmm. They yeah. work hard every single day. And all I kept thinking about is, well, what happens if some, you know, the, usually they're couples, you know, they're married couples. And I'm thinking, well, what happens if, if the, you know, if something happens to the, to one of the members of the, of the couple to, because they, they've become dependent on each other for what the work that they're doing. Absolutely. So they that are. they can both survive. Right. Absolutely. You know, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're hurting if they, if one of their, if heaven forbid, if their spouse dies, just gets laid up where they can't do the work anymore. They're in a very bad spot because they don't, they're, they're living life on a thread here. Yeah. We don't have that. So this, this kind of, you know, when, when liberals talk about these, utopic kind of societies where we just barter for shit. Who are you going to barter with? You're going to get on Etsy when there's no internet anymore. You can't get on Etsy and barter with somebody on Etsy who creates cool stuff. And even if they are creating cool little artsy things, who the, who the frick wants artsy crap? What I'm, I want to eat for crying yeah. out loud. I want food. I need you, food and toilet paper. Yeah. <laughs> My God. You, we did. People have no concept of the, the, just how comfortable our lives are in well, society. But that's just it. And then you, you, you've got an, an entire society of dependent children who mm -hmm. are going to be looking to mommy and daddy. And mommy and daddy is the government, in case I haven't made that correlation clear in the last few episodes at least, um, to provide for those basic needs mm -hmm. so that they can you know, sit at home and learn to play the ukulele and you know still chat with their friends and then they they're going to be basically going to there you are going to be slave to the government to provide for every need you have right and what what's interesting about these off-gridders though is i'm reading it and i'm like wow they may not i don't one of the things i kept thinking about was i wonder how they vote they don't, they never talked about their politics or how they, you know, how they vote or anything like that. But I'm thinking, you know, in the conversations that these off-gridders had with the social scientists, one of the things that was a prevailing theme was they did not want government encroaching upon their lands. Mm -hmm. They didn't. Sure. So they're, they're very much anti-government growth into their areas. Right. Right. And, and so if, if that's the case, how can you be, and, and what's funny is most, all, all of these people, I remember correctly, I think it was all of them. All of them did not want to be equated with hippies. <laughs> yeah, I could they see were, that. They were very much, that was a very much a prevailing theme where the authors actually came out and said, these people are not hippies. They don't want to be called hippies. They right. want to be called off-gridders. So. Well, and I can imagine if I was a quote unquote off-gridder, um, yeah. I wouldn't want to be called a hippie either because hippie, not, that also means communistic. And I think yeah. the whole idea of being off the grid is to get the frick away from everyone, everything yeah. and everybody. And you know what, if nobody else besides my wife or, you know, husband, if, if you're the lady knows I exist for the rest of my life, 
I'm good with that. You, you know, what's interesting that you have these leftists who think, well, I'll just go live on a commune, <laughs> right? <laughs> I'll just live on a commune right. and we'll be, we'll sing Kumbaya all day long. Right. You, you, there's, there's actually a study done where they looked at the number of people that lived on a socialist commune which means they just got together. They were literally a bunch of hippies and got together to sing Kumbaya and grow fruits and vegetables and live together in a very socialistic environment versus, versus other groups of people that got together to grow fruits and vegetables and live together, but lived an ascetic lifestyle under religious doctrine. What's interesting is the socialist ones collapsed they they don't oh, yeah. they don't last very long they only last for just a few years the ones that are built under religious dogma they yeah. tend to last 20 plus years well you look at the um the the Hooterites in the in the northwest um you look at the uh, um the amish in the midwest um trying to think of some of the other the um daggummit there's another group we, i have we see them out here anyway there are other um, I don't want to call it, they're not organizations or religious, they're uh, communes, if you will, that they've been around for a long, long time, but they're religious, but, but they are religious. Or they're religious. That, that yeah. is a, a fundamental moral fabric that they do share, which is what brings them together. Not just the, the right. communistic ideology. Because most of the hippies don't want to live on a commune and do hard work. They want to go live on the commune and reap the benefits of what everybody else is producing. Sure. And so when you go to a when you go to these kind of, of social gather groups and but you're living more of an ascetic lifestyle, well then everybody's going without and everybody's working hard because it's the religion, it's the, the belief that's what you're supposed to do to pay homage to the religion. And so they survive a hell of a lot longer than those that just get together and say, share, share the wealth, baby. Yeah. Sharing the wealth doesn't work. It doesn't work small scale and it doesn't work large scale. No. And, and you, again, in order for those to actually be successful, you do have to go in with the idea that it's probably going to be more work than you've ever done in your life. Right. Um, right. But the, the satisfaction that comes out of it in the end is going to justify that because you're not going to get paid. You're not going to, the more work you do doesn't mean that earns you more dollars. There's no measure of wealth right. based on your efforts. Um, so you don't have that. That only comes out of a capitalistic society. So as I drink more and more of the wine, mm -hmm. this is, really is good inspiration wine striking you? This, this is really good. What, wine what you drinking? I have no idea what it is. <laughs> okay, well, it must be good. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot I, what it was. I poured in my glass. I, I got like, like I got like eighteen bottles of wine. Really? You ought to yeah, send me a couple for for Christmas. And okay. uh, and I just I don't know. I just grabbed a bottle. It was dark and I couldn't read the label. And I just do those count as possessions, Doctor Minimalist? The the wine? Yes. It's considered food, so no, it does oh, okay. not. All right, it doesn't. <laughs> food and beverage, so no, it does not count okay. towards they don't possessions. Count towards your possessions. Because it'll eventually be gone. It'll be <laughs> okay. consumed and it will eventually go you're, away. You're in the process of eliminating <laughs> it right now. <laughs> yes, through my kidneys. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> um, so how do we tie all this into humility, which is one of our biggest, uh, or, humil or humility slash ideologies that we wanted to talk about? 
Well, I don't know how we necessarily tie that in other than the fact that. Well, let's just know. start tying it in. So if it would be very easy, actually, it's something I even contemplated. I said, you know what? Maybe I'm looking at this wrong. Maybe I need to register as a Democrat and really dive in and really start getting into the nitty gritty of what all this is like that. That way I'll at least be better prepared and better understand how to go about, about making a compelling argument. I don't know that I'm going to be able to do that. <laughs> I just don't I know. Wouldn't. That. <laughs> Part of me wants to, just because I'm that kind of antagonistic poke the bear kind of guy, but with the, the war on critical thinking right now, what I see happening is you get people, I'd like to think that there's a vast majority of people in this country, I'd like to think a vast majority, who really consider themselves to be somewhere in the middle. They don't like to think of themselves as the crazy kooky leftist, nor the goofy alt-right you know, conservative type. They're, they're right in the middle, and they still like to think for themselves. With what's happening right now, I see that middle kind of being forced to try and pick a side and jump to one end or the other and say, you know what? That's it. I've had enough with all this crap. I've had enough with you people. I'm going over here and that's it. You want to play? It's on and let's do it. The danger in that even for whether you're conservative or liberal, the danger in that you lose your ability to critical think and you will fall into an ideology one way or the other. And there, it's like the um, cultist mentality that you and I spoke about before. There's no way out of that. It's all consuming. So when we, when, when Dr. Ramirez and I sit here and actually dive in and pick some of these things apart now it's no secret where our um i guess political affiliation may lie that does not mean that whatever i hear from the right i swallow wholeheartedly i have to be able to actually right. take that and analyze it and say where do i agree where do i disagree and understand why because if we don't understand the why you're never going to be able to see into the how well, there's a there's a big part of me that wants to start Atlantis. For those for those who who who've never read the book Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand, uh, I'll give you a little bit of a background on that. So in in Atlas Shrugged, there is a you know the the business types or those who those who produce with using their minds. They a lot of them are corporate executives. They own their own businesses. They built their businesses. But not all of them are that way. Some of them are just like, you know, people like you and I that have kind of these regular, regular jobs, we're regular Joes, but they, they still believe in the value of producing from their own minds and they want to control, they want to maximize their liberty and they just want the ability to do what they know is right and create for the world. Okay. And so these, this group of people, they, one by one, they start leaving society and they go to a place called Atlantis. And the, it's a, it's a, it's a place also known as Mulligan's Valley or Galt's Gulch. They call it, it's set in Colorado. And it's basically this little, it's a town that they created 
on some land in the middle of nowhere in in Colorado and they just they leave society they basically just throw their hands up and say you know what I'm done with this why because in that fictional universe of of Atlas Shrugs set in America United States continues to go further and further and further down the path of socialism and government continues to grow at crazy uh, you know, at crazy rates, trying to solve all of the all of society's ills, and they're creating all of these other unintended consequences that just start eroding the livelihoods and the the you know the just society as a whole. You know, the, all of these government mandates and everything and regulations just start to cause society to collapse in on itself. And these group, this group of people, just say, "To hell with it! I'm out of here." Mm-hmm. And you know what? I get it. Yeah. I want to be out of here too. I'm just like, you know what? I'm tired of it. I'm tired of it. I'm ready to go off to Atlantis. <laughs> Where <Yeah>. is it? <laughs> you know. Can you get there by plane or boat? <laughs> Planes, trains, or automobiles. How do we go? Yeah. Well, they do have an airstrip, so they can't, you can go by plane, okay. uh, but not by boat. Um, but you know, that's kind of, that's kind of how I feel. And, and I, and I recognize now how people can get to that point, like in, in Atlas Shrugged and just say to hell with it. When you want us back, we'll come back. But until then we're, we're gone. And that's, that's how, that's how I feel right now. I'm just kind of like to hell with it. Republican party or whoever wants to, wants to court conservatives. I'll be here when you decide that you actually want to court us, but until then piss off. I don't want anything to do with you. Well, and, and I think you and I talked too. could you imagine if um, a dozen or the top dozen producers in this country finally said, you know what? To heck with this. I'm out. I mean, what would that do? Right. I- it would, you know, I mean, and you're talking like, you know, in the book, obviously the internet's not around. So it's, it's oil, it's oil producers and uh, you know, all these other, you know, engineers and even even uh, even one of the characters is a he's a composer. He makes symphonies, and he just picked up and left. He's like, I'm not giving them the products of my mind anymore. I'm just I'm not doing it. I'm not going to let them benefit from the from the production of of my own mind. So I'm leaving, yeah. and that's kind of that's how I feel now. In getting back to our initial question about how do we avoid creating our own ideologies. Well, so let's let's remind people what you know what an ideology is, okay. and and why that's important. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give the uh, the definition of an ideology. So, which you have readily available. Thank I you. do, I do. It's right here. It's a system of ideas or and ideals, especially one which forms the basis of economic or political theory and policy. Uh, number two, the second is uh, the science of ideas, the study of their origin and nature. Okay, so I think on, on its surface, I think that sounds not too bad. That sounds fine. Yeah, what's sounds wrong with fine, that? Right? Sure. Um, where, where I believe ideologies go off the rails is when ideologies, and most ideologies are this way. The thing is, is ideologies tend to go off the rails because ideologies become these sort of doctrines that are one-sided. And that's the problem with ideologies is they are, they are doctrines that are simply one-sided, that no matter what, they only they ignore any other sides and they only look at the one side that's, so they're very, 
um, you know, singularly focused in terms of, of a doctrine. And that's, and for, in my opinion, that's why ideologies become very destructive because they will ignore everything else in order to preserve the ideology itself, even truth. They'll ignore truth at all costs in order to preserve ideology. Go ahead. No, and ideology is overwhelmingly opposed to oppositional thought or yes. oppositional ideas. Yes. Just absolutely not. Almost combatively so. Um, and, you know, I, okay, so we talked, we talked about ideology. We talked about cults. Um, and we've talked about a little bit about religion. We've talked about government and there's, there's, I kind of want to pull one idea to the surface and let's just hash this out because I, I think there is something that we as a species have that I think can be probably the saving grace through all of this. And it is a sense of humility. Now, you and I talked a little bit about it, and we've touched on it before, but I, I think humility is um, it's a key element in all things that we do. Now, we talked about religion and, and, and faith some. Without humility, that's impossible. You cannot humble yourself before a supreme being or any God or anything like that without the idea that there is something greater than yourself, which makes you as the individual small in a, um, in a discussion that you and I have, let's say a debate where we, we have opposing arguments looking at the same situation without a sense of humility there there's, we're just beating our heads against the wall. We're, we're never going to get anywhere. That sense of humility actually allows me in talking to you. Well, no, wait, I don't understand that. Explain it to me. That idea alone just says that maybe there is something that I yet don't know that you can educate me with, which allows me to humble myself to be open to that so that we can actually have that discussion. That's where the, the idea I can learn um, or you know we can cohabitate. It also takes the idea that you know, maybe I can't fix everything. And this is the part that scares me about our government right now is when you have the individual can be humble. The entity as a whole loses that ability. And that when a government be, loses its ability to be humble because the individuals don't feel they have to be anymore, it becomes oppressive and suppressive of the people beneath it. And that's the, uh, that's again, you, there should be nobody beneath you if you are humble by nature. And I believe that we were created to be humble by nature. And maybe that is part of my faith talking. You, you, one of the things that I, I, I think we need to be careful of when we talk about humility, because I think I, I agree with you. I think humility is a very important, uh, important point or an important characteristic that that uh, as men, if nothing else, as men, right? I hope women listen to the show. Yeah. But I can't really speak to how to improve their lives as a woman. I don't, I, cause I don't know. Right. So, <laughs> 
<laughs> but all I can really do is speak to to men and tell and say, men, here's how you become better, right? And I think I think for men to become better, we need to be more humble. So I think humility needs to come into play there. But I think one area that we need to be very careful on with humility is not to be arrogant in our humility. Well, that's not humility. And there's a very big difference between feigned, um, that becomes almost martyrdom mentality. You know, oh, I'm just going to take this because I'm the the low person and you know better than me. Oh, yes. So great one. teaching. No, that's not that. That's... um um what do we call that virtue signaling that's not humility right but but they can but they can live together right they can or one can evolve out of trying to be humble so we have to be careful about doing that we have to be careful that when we're you know that when we're trying to be because we are flawed creatures we we do things stupidly <laughs> 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 some we, of us more regularly we, than we, others <laughs> we do and you know i do too I, i'm not perfect and these are things that i constantly that i constantly struggle and i reflect on daily um and you know i i do keep um you know i i do i do keep a journal um it's not only just the shit that i got to do every day but uh you know i do reflect you know, it's something that I started to do over the last probably year, year and a half has been meditating more, meditating on, you know, not just like focus on my breathing, um, you know, not that kind, not necessarily that kind of meditation, although, you know, I do that from time to time, but, but also just kind of just meditating by reflecting on the yesterday or the last week or how things went. Um, did I learn anything? What did I, what was I afraid of? What was I, what did I overcome? What did I shrink away from? Because I'm not perfect. I, I so you know the only the only way to get better, the only way to adapt is you have to take time to reflect. Mm -hmm. Well, and we talk about be, um, teaching people to be critical thinkers, right? Yes. And in, in order to do that, you have to humble yourself to recognize your own faults, your errors where you were quick to judgment, your initial thoughts, you know, why um, somebody said something to me, I reacted this way. Why did that? I react that way? That's not even saying it was right, wrong, or good or bad, but at least understanding why. So, I mean, in order to be able to just grow, if you're going to be a, a, a critical thinking individual, if you're going to be free thinking and think for yourself, you have to be able to understand who you are as an individual and why you make decisions and choices that you do. And in order to do that, you have to humble yourself to be open enough to look at all of those aspects. To, to, and you, you and I talked about the light and the dark within each one of us and look at those things too. Without humility, you can't do that. Your arrogance will overpass that. Yes. And so what I, what we need to be cautious of is even though if we're trying to be hum, if we're trying to be humble, we don't want to exaggerate our own importance of being humble. Mm -hmm. And, and that's where, that's where arrogance comes into play. So we need to be, we need to be very mindful of that and say, you know, in my, you know, I mean, I just revealed, uh, you know, that I, that I keep a journal and that I meditate, but I, I don't want to make it seem like, oh, look at how important I am because I do that. Right. Uh, it's important for me. Is it important for you? I don't know. I can't speak to you. Um, 
but I certainly don't want to come off and say, well, I do this. Therefore I'm more, I'm more better than everybody else around me, or I'm more better than the plebe down the poor peasant down the street who doesn't do those kinds of things. Um, you, you know, personally, I think that everybody can benefit from that kind of, from doing meditation, but you have to get there on your own. You can't well, get there because I tell you to do it. You have to get there on your that, own. You know what? That might not be something that works for me, or that might not be something that works for the plebe down the street. Um, and this is the danger I see happening. I'm going to take this and jump over to some of the, the, the ideology on the left right now. Just because something it works for you doesn't make it the be-all catch-all solution for everyone. And just because everybody doesn't buy into it doesn't mean you should mandate it to make that happen. That's not going to work. That's not growth. That's oppression. That's subjugation. And so, you know, okay, you would take it to your journal. You know what? I don't like to write, but what if I were to actually sit and, and talk out loud to myself about some of those things, that same kind of reflection without sure. writing it down because writing yeah. it down seems like homework for me. And so I'm not going to like that. <laughs> I mean, but for me, maybe that's different. Um, right. And so right now I just threw out another suggestion. You said, okay, sure. There is humility even in that by saying, you know what? That doesn't work for you. Okay. What about something else? Maybe I have an idea that might also work for you that you didn't think of. Mm -hmm. Being able to actually, and there's a big difference between humbling yourself so that you can grow from it versus humbling yourself and putting yourself into a corner and never moving because there is a, that's another really big problem is I see people create the sense of smallness in themselves to where they never grow out of it. Does that make sense? Sure. Sure. And so you have to act, if you're going to do that introspection and look at your own shortcomings and faults, if you don't then take that into your own prerogative and responsibility to then grow from, you're not humbling yourself. You're just weakening yourself. And there's a big difference between the two. Right. So when we talk about like an ideology, remember at the beginning of this whole conversation, we talked about how ideologies are, 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 are one-sided and the, and the ideology or those who practice the ideology will do everything they can to keep any opposing view outside of the ideology. Mm -hmm. We saw, we see that through history. We see that when people want to burn books, we see that right now when Twitter is trying to ban people who, uh, who are conservatives, they want to eliminate these opposing viewpoints. Why? Because they don't want their ideology to become muddled. They don't want their ideologies to change. If you don't want your ideologies to change because you literally want to ban the free thinking of other people, you want to ban ideas or thoughts that others might have that are contrary to your own, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. That's a huge problem. And you have, you should recognize that and say, how strong is your own ideology if you have to ban opposing viewpoints? Right. It's not going to be that strong. So when, when we talk about things like meditating or journaling or just 
talking to yourself, right? Um, <laughs> maybe, yeah, I know. That's a very mean thing. It's okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, hey, you know, it works for you, whatever. Uh, <laughs> The, the, the point is, is when you're doing that, there are some people that don't, that don't journal, they just meditate or some people don't meditate, they journal or some people just talk to themselves apparently. Okay. Um, but when you're doing that, you're allowing your, you're allowing your thinking. That's the whole, that's the whole point of doing it, right? You're thinking about those things. You're reflecting on it because the only way to get better, the only way to improve, the only way to learn and grow is to reflect on your past behavior, your past experiences, the things that you've done so that you can kind of analyze and go, why did I react that way? Was there a better way to do it? Maybe I got into an argument with somebody because of something they said, did they have a point? Um, is there something to learn from that? And so that's why we do things or we should do things like meditating or journaling or talking to yourself. Well, and and there's, there's an incredible amount of liberty and freedom um a, a liberation if you will to be gained in those kind of um of of dialogues with each other when we can actually you know imagine when you get upset with somebody or somebody you're disagreeing with instead of trying to force ideology upon each other there's always angst there's always anger there's always opposition and it becomes very dark and very negative and very angst ridden and it's it's uncomfortable when you're actually able to to meet on a level playing field and actually go okay we agreed we disagreed let's talk about this and work through that the the weight of all of that time even future time that you haven't lost to it yet being released it's incredibly liberating and you're actually bringing in more light and bringing in more wisdom and knowledge. And this is where true peace and harmony actually can prevail is in that idea of taking yourself out of your own ideological soapbox down a peg so that you can actually meet on a level playing field with the person you're, you're interfacing with. And then you're both going to actually come out on higher ground because of it. And I think overwhelmingly, if we have any hope of saving ourselves in our society, and I'm not talking about government influence, but I'm talking about just as fellow human beings on this planet, I believe that hu humanity is a very big key to that. Well, humility, there, humility. Sorry. There, there, there are things, you know, one of, the, one of the benefits of being more humble is we become much more grateful for the things that we have um, and, and even for the things that we don't have, like we understand why we don't have those things. And we're at least grateful for, I don't, I don't want to say we're grateful that we don't have them. Um, you know, I don't think I'm grateful for not having a yacht, uh, but I become more grateful for the things that I do have because I don't have a yacht. I, I, I don't, I start to realize that being more, being more humble in my life lets me reflect and say, yeah, I don't need that gigantic yacht. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things that, that uh, is fascinating people, people don't really understand this about me is, you know, I've said for a couple of years now, I've said, you know what, I would love to live in a tiny house. Uh, I even had a, a friend just a few weeks ago ask me, he said, if you had, 
if you had more money, would you buy, if you could afford it, would you buy a really large house? Um, and I've thought about that. Like if I had millions of dollars to spend, I would actually buy a smaller house than I have. I would not buy a larger one. Um, and, and I think some people might say that, and I don't know their motivation behind it, so I can't really speak to that. Um, but I truly mean that when I say that, like, you know, and people kind of look at me like, what do you mean you'd buy a smaller house? Like, why wouldn't you buy a larger house? Well, because I don't want to live in a gigantic mansion. If you want to live in a mansion, more power to you. I don't care. I really don't care if you want to live in a mansion or if you have a great house and it's gigantic and you can entertain swaths of people. I know I don't want to entertain people. I don't want to have a gigantic place to have to take care of. I, I don't want to have a gigantic property that I'm constantly worried about, but that's me. Like, even if I could afford an eight bedroom home, I, I wouldn't want it. I just, I wouldn't want it. And I, I certainly would not want to cool that sucker in the middle of July in Phoenix. Not in Phoenix. Heck no. <laughs> <laughs> but if I had that kind of money, who would want to live in Phoenix? I mean, you know, <laughs> you know. Uh, but I could have tiny homes all over the country. I could, I could, if I were a millionaire, I could literally have a tiny home in, in 50 States. Mm -hmm. I could, and I would be comfortable living in those little tiny homes and visiting every little tiny home I had. Um, and it would be great. And I would love it. And I would feel comfortable. Uh, and, and I, because I don't need all of that extra space. And I certainly don't want to clean it. Yeah, well, I know that. It, does, it doesn't matter what size house you've had. Cleaning lady. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Right. Right. But, but can you, can you, what, what can you say? You know, and I like to, I, when I, you know, when I meditate and I like to think about things like that, like what would my, what would I do if, if, you know, what would I do if, what would I do, you know, what would I do if I had millions of dollars? Would I buy a bigger place? Would I buy a more expensive car? you know, and I can, I can, I can, I know myself and I can honestly say, no, I wouldn't because I just, uh, and I have my various reasons for wanting to live in a tiny house or not wanting to have an expensive car. And, you know, I just, I just wouldn't want to do that. And so I think by being humble, we become grateful for the things that we do have. We appreciate the things that we have. We also start to not give a crap about what other people have. Yes. Yes. And, and I, and, and we talked a lot about, um, this problem in particular, when we were talking about the division of class, um, classes or the uh, class ideology in this country, especially with class warfare, um, under the direction of the, um, Marxism, but humility in, in your life. Yes, it does. It makes you, it really makes you grateful for the things you have. It makes you understand what your true needs are. Um, and that's, that's a really touchy word, especially right now. Everybody's talking about what they need. And I'm like, well, do you think about half the stuff everybody's yammering on about? It's not stuff they need. It's stuff you want. And right. trust There's me, once, once you get those things that you want, you're going to want something else. I mean, you talked about a tiny house, you know, and it's funny. You mentioned, you have other people asking, well, would you buy a bigger house? How many people would say Yes. Mm -hmm. probably most call it 90 percent. well you're in a bigger house now than you probably were before get almost guarantee it everybody yeah. gets yeah. something a little bit bigger it just happens well if you weren't satisfied now why would you be satisfied with something bigger tomorrow the answer is you probably wouldn't because if you, if you really were 
you should be happy now because you go back to you 20 years ago and told them you were living in where you are because most people don't live in the same house for 20, 30 years like their grandma and grandpa used to anymore. Um, and you said, oh, if I would have told me I was living in a, I don't know, 2000 square foot house, I'd go, oh my gosh, that's incredible. That's all I could ever want. Well, I go, well, you know what? A couple of these bedrooms are a little bit bigger. Wouldn't mind a little bit more land, a little bit nicer backyard, bigger garage, you know, it's, it doesn't stop when you actually start looking about the things that truly matter and, um, and can really take it down to a needs based, which is what you've done with minimalism. I know, um, it really allows you to liberate yourself from a lot of those other things that hold control over your lives. Yeah. My, the, the house, the, the size of house that I live in, I, I don't live in a mansion, but my house is a lot bigger than what my grandparents lived in on, on either side. Um, it's probably twice the size of what my grandparents lived in. Um, and again, I would like to go smaller, uh, for just my own personal, personal preference. Um, I think a big, you know, a big, a big problem that Americans have, I think a lot of Americans have, this is always looking for, um, trying to put happiness in achieving something. And I was there. Um, I was there. I, I was always trying to um, a, achieve my own education. I know for, for a number of years, I mean, I really, you know, when I was growing up, when I was a kid and getting into high school, I always wanted to go to college. I, I really did. And it was something that just really, to me, that was really important. And I don't really know why. I, I know my my mom was really dead set on me going and getting a college education. She always drilled it in, but I, I don't necessarily think it was as it was from her. I, I just, I happened to be in this kind of an environment where on all, all around me, it was like, you got to go to college. And so that instilled this sense of, well, I want to go to college. And I did when I was a kid, I really wanted to go to college. And I spent a long time putting myself through college. And then when I finally, when I finally graduated, with my bachelor's degree, I knew that I wanted to keep going. And there, there was like, it was like this, this need of like, okay, well I did this. Now I got to take one more step and I'll be better once I get that one next step. And then I did, I did that one next step and I got a master's degree and I thought, well, now I need, and it was dumb. <laughs> it, it really, it really was dumb. I mean, you know, when I look back on it in hindsight, I'm, I'm thankful for the person I became while I was, you know, in the act of learning. Mm -hmm. But I also recognize that I didn't need to get a degree to learn, although I probably would not have learned had I not been pursuing that. So there are some pros and cons there. But I, it, it was a hard lesson that, you know, it was like once I was done and I was like, okay, well, I, I got a terminal, they call it a terminal degree for a reason. It's like, there's nothing more after that. Uh, it's as high, you can't go any further. Right. And, and so I was like, well, now what? <laughs> <laughs> now what do I do? Well, shit. Right. And so that's when I really started embracing that minimalism is minimalism is when I was coming to the end of my doctoral degree. Cause I was like, this is stupid. I started to recognize, I'm like, this is just like, this is dumb. I need to, you know, what's important. What is it that matters versus things 
you know, versus just these things. It was like, I, I wanted to search for something that matters. And now you're laughing at me. I am laughing, and, and, but it's, <laughs> an, it's a joyous, I'm a commiserating laugh. Not mm-hmm. So for, for everybody else out there in our listening audience, you don't recognize that this is the culmination of 10 years of heckling. Yeah, yeah. Lucy, for yeah. me, because I've been doing that since, well, I think you were in, you weren't even in your master's program yet. And I yeah. said, well, what are you going to do now? Yeah. Like, well, I'm going to do for my master's. Uh-huh. I figured you would. Yeah. You're going to go back to school because, because <laughs> you don't know anything about what you yeah. want to do or what you want to do outside of being. A student. And, and I, I started picking on you. I don't even think you graduated with your bachelor's yet. Um, but yeah, yeah. I think that's when that started and it's just been going on and on. Uh-huh. I keep every time you're like, well, I'm going to go get my master's. I'm like, okay. And then what? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Then, All right. You're going to go back to school. No, I'm not. I'm just going to do this and that'll be it. Uh-huh. Okay, sure. Yep. A couple yeah. of years later. Well, I got my master's. Oh, good. Now what? Well, I think I might get my doctorate. Oh, yeah? Uh-huh. Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> I know. It was dumb. It was really it was really dumb. Uh, I, I mean, I gl- I'm glad I did it. But I use that as an example, right? Because I think so many, so many Americans were always striving for like what's over the horizon or what's worse. There are a lot of Americans. It's always like trying to keep up with the Joneses. You know, the Joneses got a new boat. So I'm going to buy a new boat. You know, the Joneses bought a new car. So I'm going to buy a new car. You know, I have friends, I have various friends that they buy new vehicles all the time. And sometimes they give me crap. Like, well, why don't you buy a new vehicle? Yours is paid for. Um, buy a new car. It's time for you to get a new car. And I'm like, because it's still running. I don't want to buy a new car. You know? So I finally got to that point. It's like, no, I know what makes me happy. And that's what makes you happy. If you want to buy a new car, I'm not going to judge you for it. Go buy a new car, go buy a full-size pickup, go buy a Mercedes. I don't give a crap. It doesn't matter to me. Go buy a big old gigantic. I have friends that live in gigantic homes and I'm like, wow, this is really beautiful home. I still wouldn't want to live here. <laughs> you know, it's beautiful. I love it. You know, I love your kitchen. I'm really jealous of your kitchen for this long, for this amount of time. And I'm like, right. no, I don't want to, li- I don't want to live here. Um, I want a smaller, I want a tiny home right. um, because that's what would make me happy. Or, or at least because it makes it for me living simply and living, you, you know, in a small world in a small environment, it put, it forces in my mind, it forces everything that's important. It forces all of those things that matter to the surface. I got you. That's why I want to do that. And I don't care. Live in a gigantic house. Yeah. Or power to you. Go live in a gigantic house. That's totally fine. But do it for the right reasons. I think that's really my point. Do it for the right reason. Don't do it because your cousin is doing it or your brother has a gigantic house. So you got to go get a gigantic house. Yeah. And, you know, you know, you look at other people's life. Trust me, their lives are flawed. Um, if you look at your own, yours is, you know, things that other people believe in are flawed. Things that you believe in are flawed. Be humble enough to recognize that whatever, what you believe and what is important to you, let that work for you and let others do for themselves. Don't try and convince everybody that, you know, better than everybody else. If you actually stop and recognize that what you believe for you works for you and maybe there's something else out there that could actually do that better okay and be open to that but 
don't force everybody else to try and think and do and act like you. And that's, that's what's happening right now in our country. That's what's happening right now in our society. And it's not creating any sense of peace. If you see a situation in chaos, that's probably not something you want to be a part of. If you actually can contribute to where it brings peace, that might be something that you might want to be a part of. Well, you look at what's going on right now. Everything with this, we have to re-educate people and we need to reprogram and deprogram. All That's not peaceful. That is a hostile takeover of society by an ideology. Think beyond that. There's another, there's another piece to humility that I think is important that we, um, or two pieces actually that I think are important. But this first one I want to talk about um, is by being humble, by building that humility, you actually end up building integrity as well. Yes, and, very and, much so. And, and the reason why you do that is because when, when you're humble, then you know, you're, not, you're not building your you're not, you don't make a case on anything flashy. Mm -hmm. You're, you're making a case based on rationality, based on principles, based on values, um, based on what's maybe what in certain contexts, maybe what's tried and true, et cetera. So you're not, you don't necessarily sugarcoat it when you're humble, when you, when you're expressing that humility, you know, you're, you're much more, more forthright and you're much more truthful in your actions and what you're going to do. And so that builds in your integrity because people know that they can depend on you. Right. And, and that integrity leads to your strength too. Remember I mm -hmm. said, humility does not, is not the same as weakness. If you right. are humble enough to know what your values and principles are and what those things of value are for you, you, it strengthens your integrity and also creates the line where the um, you cannot be passed upon. I'm not saying be humble to the plank where you can get rolled over on anything either. This creates a, a very a very structured sense of moral fortitude that you know within yourself. And then you you don't have to fight others based on what they believe because you know where you are in your own values and principles and you don't have to always come to your own defensive either somebody says you're a, a jason you're a racist really you think that about me yes you are okay well i'm sorry you feel that way i don't have to now make it a mission for me to prove my innocence in the accusation i know better Right. And that allows me in my own integrity and in my own humility to just pass along. Well, and, and that, you know, another, another piece that's important with, with humility um, is you're much more careful when you have power. Yes. And, and so you can wield that power in a very um, safe and positive way when you're humble, because you, you understand that, when you're humble, you're, you're, you're humble because you reflect on things on a regular basis. You understand that, that people come from different walks of life, that you understand the difference between contexts, right? So what's, what's contextually true for me in a given moment might be, might be slightly different for somebody else. Mm 
And so therefore I can't wield this power. Like if I'm wielding a lightsaber, right. I can't just like cut a swath in front of me because I might damage some, I might hurt somebody, I might kill somebody. So you're much more conscious of how that power can affect the environment, can affect other people, can affect animals, et cetera, around you. And I, and I think that's another important part because those people who are very humble, I mean, look at Congress. How many people in Congress do you think are truly humble? How many people would you literally hand them a pistol and said, here you go. I, I trust that you're going to do well with this. It would probably be the people that nobody knows because right. they're humble enough to not be on the public stage spouting off crap like AOC and some of the others that I don't really even need the name. The, the, the humble ones that I actually trust with that kind of power, I probably couldn't even tell you their names because I don't know them. Yeah, and it's and for that exact thing. reason. They don't they don't want the limelight. They don't want center stage to basically tell everybody how they're living incorrectly. Um they're trying to do the best they can for the people that basically put their trust in them already. Well, and and if you're humble, then you you have a when you have that power you for to to evoke the cliche, you know that there's a lot of responsibility that comes with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and you, you and I were both masters of our lodge. Mm-hmm. I reflected a lot on what it was going to mean when I was getting ready to ascend into the East. And I know you did the same thing. There's a lot of authority that comes in that particular role. Yes, it's, it's, in, it's constrained to our lodge. It doesn't affect anybody that's outside of our lodge. But knowing that there's a hundred years worth of history that's there, a hundred over a hundred years worth of tradition that there's over a hundred years, you, you know, you walk into our, into our, our, um, you know, not the actual lodge room itself, our, our library, right. Our library area. And you see all of those pictures of a hundred over a hundred years of masters looking down upon you and you're about ready to join their ranks mm-hmm. and they're looking at you through time. Like, don't screw it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, right? <laughs> it's very humbling. It's it in is. and of itself. If you if you have if if you have the gumption to think about it, mm-hmm. right? It's like, oh my gosh, don't let me screw this up. Yep. Right. Because what I say, whatever I say or do, the lodge is gonna follow me. So I can't, I need to make sure that I don't lead it off a cliff. So there's a lot of power that comes with that. And, and you have to, you have to understand that going into it. And you have to know, gosh, when I swing this sword, I got to be careful. And you had, you had your, we, we always say as masters, right? That every master has one, has their one, their one thing. That's a big doozy that you have to deal with. Right. right. You had yours. I had mine. Um, and, and that's when you have to swing that sword. You have to use that power that you have. And you have to make sure that you do it in a way that's, that's, that doesn't benefit you per se, that benefits the, the lodge and the fraternity. And, yep. and that's a hard thing to do because it's not black and white. No, no, it never is. And, and I always looked at those, those old, uh, the past masters who had led that lodge before me um, over the last hundred plus years. And 
I, I wanted to make sure that whatever decision I made, whatever direction I took, whichever way I brought that, that they would all look at me like a proud father, not an angry parent. And it's not even yes. for the sake of, of making a wrong decision so much as making sure that the one that I did decide to do was in line with the way they thought and acted, which is really kind of weird to think about um, now that I say it out loud. But I never wanted to, to, to act or decide or to lead or to do anything which would bring anything but pride and honor to mm -hmm. the lodge, to the fraternity, to my brothers, to my um, predecessors, and to the people that were coming up behind me. Yeah, you know, there's a there's in the Lord of the Rings. I'm going to go geek out for a moment. Sweet. In in the in the movies, the Lord of the Rings, there's the character of King Theoden, and and King Theoden of Rohan. You know, he he struggles because he, as king, he hasn't really defended his people he hasn't gone out and you know fought a war for justice and peace and all this kind of stuff and, and there's a there's a part in the movie where he he recognizes now that he's fought against the great evil of sauron right the forces of sauron and everything or he's about ready to that he knows that now he can he can rest at ease with his he, he says with his forebears Right with all of those other kings, and those other kings will welcome him with open arms up into death, right? Because they'll be able to bring him into the fold and say, "You did your, you did your deed. You did well as king." And and that's kind of how I felt in becoming master of the lodge. Like, you know, I I wanted to be able to feel like when I pass from this world and go on into the next, and I meet those brothers, that they would. They would open, you know, welcome me with open arms and say, you did good. Mm -hmm. You know, you had her for one year, but you, you did good in that one year. Right. You know, you, right. did, you, you had to make some tough decisions, but we support you. And, and, you know, we don't know if it was the right one. Hell, I don't even know if they're the right one anymore, <laughs> but you did what you, what you, you followed your principles, you followed your values, you didn't burn the place down, but it's more than just, you didn't burn it down. Right. You have to. It's not because anybody can just not have it burned down, right? You, you have to make sure that when you hand it off, it still maintains those values of right. when you received it. Well, and it's, it's the, I know the, the old cliche, you want to give, um, give something to someone in a better shape or condition than when it was given to you. Yeah. Well, I can't necessarily say that's a hundred percent correct. It's, more at least handing things off where there's a trajectory of making sure it's going to continue on for the next 20 30 years you know okay so here we are talking about our lodge you know our lodge was very um um fortunate. i think we're going to go off on a on a masonic tangent no, here what, so, what i which I is do. good which is good i'm just i'm just, <laughs> just i'm prefacing. just prepping everybody so that if you want to tune out now you go ahead it, it, <laughs> Our you don't have was, to, but you can. <laughs> was fortunate. Our forefathers gave us a, a beautiful building and a lot of property and set that building up financially for success through a lot of 
time-honored tradition and work and dedication. And there's a, there's a lot to be said for that. There was a lot of integrity in making sure that I was able to walk into that building and enjoy it. Yeah. And I was guided by the idea that it was my responsibility above all else that I ensured that that continued on for 20 years after I had any influence in it whatsoever. I had to make sure that my grandson would be able to do that, would be able to walk into that building and enjoy it because there were a lot of other grandfathers who made sure that they did that for me. Yeah. Having never met me. Um, so yeah. And, and I hope, uh, on another note, you know, as far as responsibility and humility and trying to learn and do the best we can and make good decisions, you know, I hope when I, um, I see my father again, you know, that he gets to tell me, you did good, son, you did good. And yeah. I want that same thing. Um, and I hope that the, uh, the Lord does the same thing for me when I come home too. tells me that I did good. That's the, that's the humility in me. I want to make sure that I, I've done my father's before me proud in my life and the my ultimate father proud in the life that he's given me. You, you, you know, um, bringing this back momentarily to, to, uh, to politics, I don't get the sense that, any part, that anybody in Congress, maybe in the Supreme Court, but I don't get the sense that anybody in Congress or even in, even in the presidency over the last 40 years of the presidency, I don't think anybody has really felt the weight of would my, would the founding fathers be pleased of the actions that were performed? Because, no, I don't, I, I don't believe that at all. Because if they were, their actions would be very different. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't believe that somebody like, um, you know, Ocasio Cortez. I don't think she thinks about the founding fathers. Oh no, I think she thinks about them a lot, and but, I, but I think not in the way with, that you and I would. No, I think that where you and I look at with on reverence at the the time in which they existed, the opposition that they faced, the circumstances they were in. And what they set out to do in the manner that they set out to do it with an incredible amount of awe and reverence. She, however, I believe, like many others, look at them with complete disgust and disdain. Right. Ignoring it, it, completely that their existence here right now was set out by the actions that they took at the time. Right. Yeah. You know, if I were if if I were president of the United States, I would have a hard time leaving the building. Because okay. of what the White House represents. Oh, yep. Right. I, I, I would. I, I would have a very different, but I would, but I would leave, but because I would go to all of these other things. Like as president, I would want to talk to injured soldiers. I would want to be at Congress. I would want to go down to the National Mall. I would want to, like, I would want to do all of these things as the president of the United States. It, that would because of the history of the country and my own respect for the founding fathers, particularly for people like George Washington and Benjamin Franklin, who were also Masons, right? Um, I would want to do well in their eyes. Mm -hmm. And I would want to 
just live and breathe all of the history that exists in and around Washington, D.C. and what that truly means, you know, I wouldn't, I would just, I would be so appreciative every second that I was inside the White House. And I, I don't think anybody goes in there thinking that. No, I, I, if I were to get, if, if I were ever president, I wouldn't be able to do a damn thing for the first three years. Because I'd be I, like, I'd be this, <gasps> I'd, I'd be soaking <laughs> up all of that stuff for like three years on end. Just, yeah, just I just yeah. couldn't do anything. Yeah. I mean, but unfortunately, no, nobody thinks about that. They, they think about how they're going to change everything. You're talking yeah. about a society right now where we overwhelmingly applaud the idea of people saying things like, I want to fundamentally change our America. country, change yeah. America. Um, that is probably the most asinine, irritating, irresponsible, and ridiculous statement I have ever heard a politician make. Ever. Right. Right. And the fact that that is not causing immediate uprising just blows me away because that pisses me off to no end. Right. How dare you say that you are openly going to fundamentally change this country? But see, you? you and I would never be, I, I know I would never be able to get elected because I would run on a complete platform of slashing whether it was congress or whether it was the presidency i would run on a platform of slashing spending entirely across the board i would you know i would i would be i would be like walking in there with a freaking samurai sword and just slashing government i oh. i would i would be slashing government and i would be trying to instill the same sense of values and principles that existed at the founding of our country now there are going to be crazy people that say you want to go back to slavery no no, nope. I'm not saying that. <laughs> <laughs> all I'm talking about is governance. Yeah. I'm not talking about slavery. I'm oh, I know governance. I could get enough votes to get elected, but oh, actually yeah. getting inaugurated and, and you know, put no. in. No, no, that's never going to happen. There's, they there's, never let it happen. There's no way I would even get half of the not even not even a, not even a quarter of the votes. There's there's no way anybody in this country can run on eliminating the Department of Education and get elected. And that's something I would do. Oh, yes, I could. You, yeah. Oh, ye of little faith. Do you really mean that you don't think that I could, okay, this don't challenge, but that I couldn't get up and make a case to get rid of the Department of Education, no. why that's good, liberate teachers, actually get schools to teach, and get rid of the government oppression that everybody's under, even by the Department of Education, and not convince people? No, it's it you wouldn't get, you, you would convince people you wouldn't get elected. And, and that's what I'm saying is I, is I would run on that platform. I would run on the platform of I want to eliminate the Department of Education and nobody in their right mind would vote for me. I would. <laughs> yeah, I would, <laughs> I would get like 0.03% of the votes. <laughs> because everybody would think, well, that's just craziness. That's just crazy talk. And, and everybody would be driven by fear they would not they they would not they would never fully grasp what that actually means and they would be driven by fear and they wouldn't vote or they they wouldn't vote for me let me just put it that way they would they would think that that's crazy talk i think it's possible well 
perhaps. I'm going to try it. I'm not going to run for president, but. <laughs> <laughs> the, the last thing about humility okay. that I think is important to, uh, to talk about, you know, for, the, for people who are, are humble, um, you promote other people. You acknowledge yes. the work that other people do. Like you don't need, you don't, you, you don't need the recognition. You don't, you don't, you just don't need it. Um, and this has got, this got me to think, this got me to thinking about, do you have to, do you have to be in a particular part of your life to not worry about those kinds of things? Like, you know, for, for example, for, for me, I consider myself, um, you know, somewhat, um, successful, I guess, in my own career, personal life, things like that. So I don't care who gets the credit. In fact, I'll, I'll promote and, and make sure that everybody else gets the credit and that I don't. Um, so, you know, do you have to be at a certain area in your life to really embrace the idea of other people getting the credit and you not? Well, I think, I think with a sense of maturity, um, out of adolescence that we develop that. And I believe that that does become natural over time. Um, and there's a big difference between giving credit where credit is due versus um, adoration for achievement. You know, I, I, I don't, if I do a good job and I'm doing a good job, you know what, when my boss comes up to me and says, hey, Jason, you know what, you're doing a great job and I really appreciate you. I can tell you that I internalize that and I, that means a lot to me personally, um, more than somebody saying, Hey, you know what? You did a good job. We're giving you your raise for this year. I mean, that, that doesn't influence me very much. It really doesn't. Don't, don't throw me though. That's, that's almost a, a placation in my mind. But when I have somebody who I respect, in a workplace, in a, in the, like in the fraternity, or even as a peer who says, you know what, I really think you're doing this, or I really appreciate how you do that. That one moment can be very, um, motivating for me, not because I seek that out, but it's a, it's a gratification thing. Now, in turn, I also make it a point to compliment or recognize others for their achievements and their successes, because I think I know that that's important to me. So I turn around fair play, if you will. And I try to do that for other people. I think those can be nuggets that just carry us on and lift us up. Um, I don't appreciate the overwhelming praise. I don't need somebody saying, Jason, you, we think you need to get employee of the month. I go at eh, timeout. There's like nine other people that deserve that way more than me. That's not being, um, you know, humble to just get out of the recognition. I simply do think that there's other people that deserve it more. Thanks for the nomination, but thank you. No. And there is a big difference in that. Um, I don't need statues or monuments lifted up in my name, but somebody giving me an attaboy every once in a while, that's good. The, the other thing that I think is really difficult when it comes to humility, I think, I think a lot of the things that we've talked about are easy or easier um, to achieve by being humble. I think the most difficult thing for people um, when they're trying to be humble is acknowledging their mistakes or acknowledging when their decisions were not the right decisions. And I think that's, 
I think that's inherently difficult. And the reason why I think that is because it's a natural human reaction for us to cover up our mistakes because it's, it usually, it, it usually falls to survival. Um, you, you know, if you, if you've made a mistake in a work environment, for example, you know, sometimes mistakes are so bad that you can get fired, reprimanded, etc. So I think, ha- I think recognizing that, yeah, you made that mistake. And remember a lot of people, we talked about this and I think it was in the last one, you know, when, when people w- can get away with something, they typically will. Um, and, and so being humble means that you'll still take the blame that's due for yourself, right? If you fundamentally made a wrong decision, then when you're humble, you acknowledge the fact that you made that decision. In fact, you'll even acknowledge it to other people and say, yeah, that was not the right decision that I made. And that's very, very difficult because everything else, giving praise to other people, acknowledging them, I can, you can do that without causing self-pain. Sure. Right. Um, you, you know, dealing with the power that's been given to you, you can deal with, you can do that without causing self-pain, increasing your integrity, being grateful, all of those things you can practice without causing self-harm. But when you have to, when you have to own up to a mistake that you made, whew, that's a different ball game. It is. It is. And you know, we talked about this long time ago. Um, there is so much more to be gained out of failure than there is out of success. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> success teaches you nothing. Failure can teach you over and above um, what, what you can learn through normal course. If you actually take those mistakes, you own up to it, you own the consequence thereof and can analyze why those mistakes happen. The amount that you can grow from that, not only as an individual um, or as a person, but whether it's in your job, in your relationship with your significant other, um, as a parent, as a um, child, I mean, any of those types of things in any relationship or any endeavor, it, when you are actually able to own up to a mistake, deal with consequences and learn from it, you are, are growing as an individual beyond the years that you have through time and experience. Yeah. And, and it's, it's just, it's hard to do that. It's hard to do the right thing when nobody's looking, mm-hmm. right? A lot of times, you know, being grateful or acknowledging other people, sometimes those become really easy because other people are, are, can watch you do it. Right. And you can, and yeah, you can, the, it also benefits you. If you give praise to your team members for doing a job well done in front of other people, I will admit it makes you look good when you do that. But when you take the blame and you say, no, 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 they weren't at fault. It was me. Well, it's hard to do that. It's also difficult. It it can also be very difficult to do something that you're supposed to do or that you should do when nobody is looking. Right. And I think humility is part of that. And I'll give you a little, I'll give you a little example. It's not a perfect one necessarily, but it is an example. You know, I take my dog out for a walk and my dog invariably craps on the side of the road when we're walking. You know, and most times nobody is there. It would be very easy for me to just leave it. Mm-hmm. There have been times where I'm like, I don't want to pick it up, you know? And I have to stop and think, but it's 
it's the right thing to do. And so I, I pick it up, but there are those moments where I'm like, I don't want to pick it up this time, mm-hmm. but I still, you know, no, I got the bag here. Might as well pull it out, you know? And, and I, and I pick it up because that's what I should do, even though nobody is looking and nobody would care. Yeah. I might get a dirty scowl if somebody walked by and saw me not pick it up, but ultimately nothing's going to happen to me by not picking it up, but it's the right thing to do. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there are still those times, even though I know it's the right thing to do, knowing it's the right thing to do and having an out, a lot of people will just ignore it. And I know most people do because of all the dog crap that I see on the side of the road. When I take my dog for a walk, <laughs> most people ignore it. Right. Most people don't care. Right. Well, and there's, there's a big difference between owning up to a bad decision or owning up to a mistake versus admitting to it after you got caught. Right. I think that's that's it. There, you can be humble when they say, "All right, Jason, we're pretty sure this happened and it was your fault." What do you have to say? Well, at that point, you can either you know, weigh it out. Well, if I lie, can I get away with it? Can I do it? no? All right, fine. You caught me. Yeah, I did it. That's not true humility. That's just surrendering to the inevitability of you're in trouble. Right. When you actually recognize that and it and own up to a mistake prior to you getting caught, that's where real growth happens. And that's that's again goes to what you're talking about doing the right thing when nobody's looking or people will get away or if they think they can get away with it, they'll try. Yeah. Yeah. Or you know, the there there are there was a time last week I had somebody they sent me an email. And they asked me if I had done this, this task, it was a minor task. It took like two seconds to do. Um, and I was waiting for them to send me an email and I never saw it. And then they sent me another email that said, Hey, I just wanted to know where this was, you know, and now I'm under the gun. Now I'm like, Oh crap. I didn't even see their first email and here they're sending it to me again. Um, And, you know, I have to respond and say, you know, there's that moment where I could make up any kind of an excuse. Nobody would know. They would, they wouldn't know. Right. Um, There's that, but there's that moment where I, I just have to say, you know what? I'm sorry. I completely missed your first email. I, I, I honestly, I didn't see it, but I just took care of it. Yeah. So I went ahead and I took care of it. Everything's good. Let me know if you have any questions. Um, You know, that there, there's that moment, there's that moment where I think, I could write this email in a different way where I don't accept blame. I don't say that I made a mistake or, you know, anything. I just call it a day. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's also something to be said personally by just acknowledging it and acknowledging it to the person that I don't want to say I faulted them, but for lack of a better term, you know, I, you know, I kind of held them out there. Um, just to let them know, Hey, you know, this was important. It was important enough to me to tell you that, yeah, I screwed up. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And, and that may see it's, you're right. That's damage to yourself. That's harm to your own person, but the amount of integrity that that builds with the people that you work with, um, it will come back in dividends. I know a lot of the people that I work with that I deal with, um, um, at my work, um, they have a great deal of respect for me because they know that when I tell them something, that's the truth or I mean it. I never, I don't lie to people. I'm upright with them all the time. 
Um, if I say I'm going to do something, I do it. And God forbid, if I don't, something's wrong, <laughs> something happened. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I had, um, one of the, the gals that I worked with, um, uh, she, she said, did you actually get this done? And I said, oh my gosh, no, I I'm didn't. so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I did not. I got, I got busy with other things and I allowed myself to be distracted. I have no excuse. I just, I didn't do it. And she looked at me kind of dumbfounded, like blank stare for a minute. And she goes, uh, okay. I said, I'm going to fix it. I'll get it right. She goes, I don't think I've, I've, I've ever. Okay. All right. That's good. And everything was fine, but I, I just, yeah. yeah. By, by owning up to it just right then and there, it's, it changed the whole dynamic of the conversation. Yeah. Well, and you know, there are, there are times now I'm in a place in my career, right. Where I tell people, I'm like, you know what? It's okay to, and I encourage people. I'm like, please, you know what? I get a ton of email and I'm very busy and all doing all kinds of other crazy, stupid crap. Um, if you don't hear from me, it's okay to follow up because I want, because I know, I know what it's like being on that other side where you've asked somebody to do something and they haven't done it yet. And I try to give them the benefit of the doubt. And I'm now at that point where I need to send them another email. It doesn't feel good to do that. It no. doesn't feel good to be that person to have to say, Hey, did you do this or not? Um, and so what I do is I always try to, I try to let them know. I'm like, Hey, you know what? It's okay. If you haven't heard from me, it's okay to send me a reminder email because, because the world is dumb and I'm, and I'm not only am I dumb, but I'm also crazy, busy, stupid too. <laughs> so if you need to follow up, please don't feel bad about doing it. I will not take it personally. If you have to follow back up yeah. because I want them to know things are chaotic. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to do so. And they they usually are like, okay, great. You know, now I don't feel so bad because I don't, the last thing I want them to do is I don't, I don't want them to feel bad to follow up. Right. Right. Don't coming back to me. Shouldn't be a burden or shouldn't make you feel like you're right. pestering me. Right. Um, and I, I, I've heard that too. Oh, Jason, I know I'm probably driving you crazy. I'm like, Whoa, time out. My yeah, job no, is to be here for you. <laughs> you're, you're not bothering me. If you ever feel like that, then I'm not doing my job effectively because I'm making you feel that way. So don't ever do that. Yeah. yeah. Good stuff. All yeah. right. Well, do you have any last parting thoughts on uh, the whole uh, humility slash ideology stuff? Um, we covered everything the way you wanted to cover. I don't know if we did either, but then again, my, my brain's a little fuzzy, I think, today. So, <laughs> well... <laughs> Just like my face, just a little fuzzy and unkempt. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. So, well, this has been a good one. As always, you know, you can catch all of our stuff over at thefusionunderground.net on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash azfusionunderground. That is until they kick us off. Same with YouTube. Yeah. Uh, we're on YouTube. Just do a search for uh, the Fusion Underground or just Fusion Underground. We come up right there. We've got... Well, we've got all of our videos out there. You can take a look, but you can catch all of our stuff. We do all of the links to the audio version of the podcast, uh, as well as to the YouTube videos that you can watch. Um, off, all of that is, is just on our website. So you can catch all of that stuff there. We're on Twitter, Parler. Um, on Twitter, we're uh, the FU brothers. So check it out. Check us out there. Um, but get, you can get all of our podcast audio feeds off of our website as always um so for 
I gotta, I don't know what, ha, what I did. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I don't know. I have no idea what I did there. <laughs> That's too funny. Yes. We don't have a snurdly. I'm just going to say it again. We do High not tech. have a snur snurdly. Yes. So for Jason Moretz, I'm Manuel Ramirez. Thanks again for listening to Fusion Underground. Have a good Peace night. Peace out, everybody.